News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. For some reason, the BC government has a you know patchy track record of getting pandemic relief money out the door. Because now we're also hearing about issues with their launch online program. Now, this was a program about twelve million dollars intended to help businesses in BC with their online presence. Seems like a good idea, right? Help businesses establish a better presence online, sell their product online, and give them a little money to help them do that. Except some businesses that would like to take advantage of this aren't eligible for it. So joining us to talk about what happened when they went to apply is Sumit Baines, the operations manager at Baines Travel in Vancouver. Sumit, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So how did you hear about this program? I heard it actually about it through our uh, BIA, which is our Business Improvement Association on Fraser Street, and uh, they've been very good in informing us of all the different subsidies and everything that's available through the different levels of government. So that's how I heard about it. Okay, so were you thinking that, oh, this this will help for us, this will help for the business? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, that's what we were told, and they said, you know, check it out, see if you guys are eligible. And um, the assumption is a business like ours, um, you know, we're a travel agency, and obviously um, with COVID, we're struggling mightily. Uh, so we just made the assumption that, uh, you know, we would be eligible because, of course, the web is an important part of, of getting customers and uh, driving business. And so we just made the assumption that we would be eligible. And what happened when you applied? Uh, so we didn't actually get to the application part. I kind of did my due diligence first and asked some questions. And, you know, I went to launch online first and uh, they informed me that uh, we were not eligible as we were a service business, which didn't make a lot of sense because service businesses are the ones that seem to be struggling more than, um, you know, than the ones producing physical products. So I went back to them a couple of times. I uh, went to my MLA my MLA was quite sure that we should be eligible and um, went back to launch online and they, you know, stated, no, we're not. And, you know, went back and forth a few times between the MLA and launch online. And we all came to the conclusion that uh, the way the program is structured, that service-based businesses that are not selling physical repeatable products are not eligible for the program. Okay, wait a minute. Even though technically, like if you're selling travel, if you're selling tickets, that's a repeatable product, right? Like you're, you're selling something. I would assume so. I mean, uh, I would think that, you know, just service-based businesses overall would be the ones that they would want to target. I mean, even if you're a small restaurant or, you know, even a hairdresser or something like that, and you need a better online presence, I mean, they're the ones who are, are taking the biggest hit here during COVID. Um, you know, we're being told, you know, in, in many cases, you know, we have to shrink the size of our businesses or, or, you know, in the case of ours, discourage people from traveling altogether. So, you know, when we come out of this, we want to be able to to succeed. And if the government's willing to support and help and, you know, improve things so that we can compete when things are back to normal, um, you know, we want to take advantage of that. What has it been like, though, Sumit, to operate a travel business right now? How have you managed to kind of stay afloat? Uh, it's been very difficult, uh, to say the least. Um, you know, we've been uh, lucky. You know, the government supports have definitely helped uh, to this point. You know, we're definitely not making any money these days but um you know we've been able to find ways to to generate a little bit of revenue here and there and you know we're we're our we're, our losses are not as bad as of course they would have been i think without the government supports the way they have been with the, the federal subsidies for wage support i think we probably would have shut the doors by now but um 
you know, we're finding a way to, to stick it through and just hoping that the vaccine kind of picks up pace and people are able to travel, you know, later this summer or, or early in the fall. Do you think there's been enough support, though, for the tourism and service industry? Uh, overall, I think it hasn't been great, um, you know, because, you know, we're if we're following the rules, we should really be telling people to stay at home, which, you know, that's what we've been doing. But it's very difficult for us to to find a way to move forward because we're kind of stuck in a holding pattern. We all had the hope that, you know, this year of 2021 was going to be better than 2020. And unfortunately, in our particular business, it's actually gotten worse with the new rules, you know, the new quarantine restrictions. And it's unfortunately where, you know, we want to see that light at the end of the tunnel. But the way things are going, we don't seem to have a plan of how to get out of this. Um, we just seem to be piling more restrictions on top of restrictions, which for a business like ours, which is dedicated to having people go see the world, um, it doesn't really work. Um, it, so we, can, we can hold out for a little bit longer, but not for too much longer. It must be difficult, though, because you're right. The restrictions say we're not supposed to travel, but do people still call you and they want to book travel? Uh, yeah, they do. I mean, to be perfectly honest, a lot of the stuff we're booking is is for people, um, you know, seeing family at, uh, at the end of life. Um, that's that's really what the, the primary thing that we're doing are people who, um, you know, have business deals that they just absolutely have to, to be in town for in, in a particular place. So there's not a lot for sure. We're probably down 97, 98%. That's um, a lot. Yes, it's a lot. It's, it's, it's extremely significant. So, I mean, there's, it's just a trickle. I mean, you know, we're, we're trying to stay busy. We're focusing on training and things like redeveloping our website and, you know, making improvements um, to be ready for when things get better. You know, we're competing, in a, in, you know, we're competing against, uh, you know, companies like Expedia and Google, like, you know, massive worldwide multinational companies. So for a small business like ours, we need the help. Uh, in order to make sure that, you know, we're ready to rock yeah. when things get back to normal. So you said you're t- tweaking the website. So you thought, oh, this launch online program will be perfect for that. Yeah, we've done a, we've done a few tweaks, very minor things up to this point. But, um, you know, when I saw the launch program, it, it's, uh, you know, it's not a small amount of money. It's not, it's not massive either. But, you know, we would commit to making more significant improvements if, the government, um, you know, if we were eligible for this program, because, you know, $7,500 towards development of our website, we'd have to put in $2,500 is, right. is a lot, um, you know, but uh, for us to say, we're going to, you know, make those, make those commitments on our own, not knowing, you know, what's going to happen over the next six months, it's, it's difficult for us to do that on our own. Okay, then Sami, what is your message here to the government today? Uh, I think it is just to re- just to look at the program and see um, what can be done and really remove those restrictions that say that uh, uh, service-based businesses are not eligible. Um, it, sh- it should be eligible to, you know, any of those businesses who think it makes sense for them, um, and especially those ones that are, that are really hurting. I mean, our revenues, like I said, are down, you know, all, you know, we're, we're close to zero, right? So, um, you know, we're the ones who need the help. So I think if, if they can tweak the program a little bit, which I know they can, and, and they, you know, the, the tweaks that they made for the provincial, the, mm-hmm. the main provincial grant, they did those tweaks. And if they can make those similar tweaks for this grant as well, I think it would be a big help. All right, we'll see what happens. Listen, thanks for telling us your story this morning. Great. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Samit Baines is the operations manager at Baines Travel. They would love to take advantage of this provincial government program, and it turns out they didn't qualify because they don't sell a repeatable product. And yet it is the service industry, as he points out, that is the hardest hit by the whole pandemic situation. And we'll see what we can find out on that topic. 
When I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I had a yearly tradition with my dad that I always loved. And we did this for years and years and years. We would go to the auto show. My dad loved cars. I loved seeing new cars. And this was something that we just loved doing together. In fact, he later on, he always took my younger brother too, always to the auto show. Well, times change, right? There are no kind of in-person trade shows anymore. And they are going virtual, but they are having a 2021 International Auto Show. And they're going to be showing off the latest and greatest automakers from all over the world. But I was so curious about that. Like, how are they going to do it? I would have loved to have gone to an in-person one just to see things like that new Ford Bronco that is coming out because it looks amazing, plus all the latest electric vehicles. But let's talk about what you can still access and how you're going to be able to do that. Joining us now is Jody Lai, the editor and chief at autotrader.ca. Jody, thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. This seems a bit ambitious that they're still going to try to go ahead with an auto show. How is this going to work? Yeah, so like so like everything else happening this year, automakers have also turned to digital to kind of showcase their new cars. Um a lot of them have had to be forced to, to get creative with how they showcase stuff. So as an example, uh, Mitsubishi just came out with their new Outlander SUV, and they partnered with Amazon Prime to live stream the event, which was really cool. Um, BMW also unveiled a new EV uh, late last year, and they created a whole series of mockumentaries with uh, celebrities to help unveil it. So they've been getting really creative. So how can people go to the auto show then? Like, do you still have to pay? Is it all just available? How does this work? So it's all online. Um, from what I understand, you don't have to pay anything. It's just uh, um, you can do a quick Google search on any of these um, to find them. So there's a lot of interesting stuff happening this year in the absence of auto shows. Um, and there's a lot of cool cars coming. So there's a lot to get excited about. So what is it that you are looking forward to seeing? Like, there's a bunch of cars. I would have loved to have seen the new Ford Bronco, that, that new Mustang Mach-E, too, and all these different new electric vehicles. Yeah, so one, one of them that I'm really excited to see just came out this morning, actually. It's called the Hyundai Ioniq 5, and it's a brand-new EV. And the reason why I'm so excited about it is that it has a very retro-inspired style, and it's going to have up to 500 kilometers of range. It's also going to be available with all-wheel drive. Um, and I think it'll do a lot to get more Canadians excited about EVs. I'm just looking at a picture of it. Now, this is cool, actually. What do you think is the key to getting more Canadians excited about electric vehicles? I think a little bit of that has to do with style. And so with the one with the Ionic 5 that you're looking at now, it has a very appealing retro style, which I think is having a huge comeback right now. The other thing I think is range. Um, you know, range anxiety is a real thing for a lot of Canadians. That's and true. I think the more the more range automakers can offer, the more comfortable Canadians will be. Um, also, offering all-wheel drive is massive. Canadians love all-wheel drive because we have like six months of winter, so it becomes really handy for Canadian drivers. Um, also, just accessibility to charging is really important, too. What are some of the trends that you see happening right now in vehicles? Um, there's going to be a lot more tech coming in terms of connectivity and safety. Um, for example, the Ionic 5 that we're looking at now will have a cool augmented reality head-up display, which is really cool, very futuristic. Um, I think a lot of trends we're seeing is the return to retro styling. 
which I'm really excited about. Okay, what does that mean when you say retro styling? I start to think about sharp edges and corners. A little bit, yeah. So um, I think design is being simplified. And so recently we've seen a lot of like angular designs and like really in-your-face big grills. And I think automakers are looking to their past models for inspiration and, and toning it down a little bit. Um, and I think that helps certain vehicles age more gracefully. Right. Is it fair to say, do you think, Jody, at this point, that every automaker is on board with electric vehicles? I think so, yeah. There's been a lot of movement in the EV space. This year we'll see a ton of new EVs come out, um, which is really exciting because it's, it spans pricing and budgets and style. So there's really going to be an EV for everyone. Um, and the technology is just getting so much better and so quickly, too. So I think the uh, automotive industry has been working really hard to get people more on board with EVs. I'm going to try to check this out then online. Anybody can do it, right? That's true, yep. All right, I'm going to look at it. Jody, thank you. Thank you so much. That's Jody Lai, who's the editor-in-chief at autotrader.ca, talking about the 2021 International Auto Show, which is virtual this year, but anybody can check it out. And there's a lot of actually cool stuff uh, worth taking a look at if you like to look at cars, which I certainly do. Let's take a look at travel right now because we're finally getting some numbers about how much travel there was in and out of Canada during the holiday season. I thought the number was, you know, pretty high. I mean, the month of December alone, 170,700 Canadians flew home from abroad just in the month of December. That is up more than 30% from the month of November. That's Tens of thousands of people who still decided it was a good idea to go somewhere in December. We know what happened, right, with the politicians and others who decided to do that. But let's take a look at the numbers overall for that month. Travel into Canada did decline, though, when you go year over year. Of course it did. Something like 93% fewer people traveled in December 2020 than Canadians who traveled in December of 2019. That's obviously a lot of people. So the number of travelers into and out of Canada declined from almost 97 million in 2019 to 26 million in the year 2020. That is a huge number to go down. Last April, the number of international travelers fell to a record low. So that, of course, is right in the grips, the beginning of the pandemic, when everything was shut down. The number was 614,000 international travelers in the month of April. As StatsCan says, that is a record low. So before the pandemic actually got started, Essential services pretty much made up, you know, fewer than one in 10 trips across the border. That has now gone up, way up to make up about 50% of cross-border traffic. Now that makes sense though, doesn't it? Because the land border crossing is, is pretty tightly monitored at this point. You can't just go down there and say, oh, I want to go across the border and get some milk or get some gas. We don't make those trips anymore. Uh, but there's so because of that, the essential trips have gone way up. That Those are the people who are crossing the border. I'd be curious about the other half, though, right? If they said essential services trips are 50% of cross-border traffic, well, what are the other 50% of those trips there? And spare a thought for our truck drivers on this one. 
Uh, they are dealing with so many obstacles in all of this. So they're still doing what they do that is so critical to all of us to get goods you know, to and from. But they've got closed restaurants along their regular travel routes. They've got fewer rest stops that are open. And they're making frequent trips into regions that could carry a higher risk of transmission for COVID-19. I mean, just think here on the West Coast, California for a long time was quite the hotbed. And they are going up and down that I-5 coming into Canada. And there are strict rules about do they get out of their truck? What do they do? Like how much time do they spend there? And all the rules and things that they have to follow. So yeah, for our truck drivers, it has been incredibly challenging because their work continues. And we also know that there's still problems with this whole quarantine issue. Yesterday was the day that the new restrictions took place for uh, Canadian, anyone, including Canadians who enter the country. Mandatory hotel quarantines, pricey, Now, the government is promising that the wait times on that phone line will improve. There have been a lot of complaints about people unable to get through, but we'll keep you posted on how that goes. For some, it is disappointing to hear that it is business as usual in BC schools, even though the B117 variant of COVID-19 has been found in seven schools in the Fraser Health region, or they have had kind of contact with somebody who has that variant. Now, yesterday there were lots of questions for Education Minister Jennifer Whiteside wanting to know, well, why can't people impose stricter rules? Why do they? Why does it have to be a one-size-fits-all policy for the entire province and all the school districts? Well, Jennifer Whiteside said there's no evidence of transmission in the schools that the children are being exposed to these variants outside of schools. And the province does continue to ignore calls for the wider use of rapid tests and, again, ignoring those calls for more autonomy for those individual schools and districts to decide on their own COVID-19 protocols. So let's get some reaction to this. Joining us now is Jackie Taggart, the Liberal, BC Liberal MLA and opposition critic for education. Thank you for being here this morning. Good morning, Simi. Is there a better way to do this? Well, I mean, we're hearing from parents um, and school staff a great deal of anxiety around uh, the exposure notices and the number of exposure notices. And then over the weekend to have um, the indication that not only is it an exposure notice, but it is the exposure notice in regards to the variant. And I think that, you know, when we hear that, and uh, we've listened to Dr. Bonnie Henry talk about the um, the concern around the variant, um, parents and staff immediately get extremely anxious. Um, what do we know about the variant? Uh, we hear it's more contagious. We hear it spreads easier. Uh, so we're expecting that government will be doing everything it can uh, to protect uh, students and staff at a school level. And uh, when we talk about rapid testing, we have rapid tests sitting on shelves in a warehouse somewhere and not being used. And uh, they're used in response. Uh, to um, an exposure situation, like we heard on Sunday, a number of teachers uh, were rapid test. Uh, but we're suggesting that perhaps uh, government should shift its thinking and use it for prevention. We, uh, we hear Dr. Bonnie Henry talk about the fact that what's happening in schools is reflective of what's happening in community. And as numbers spike, um, I would suggest to her that uh, perhaps rapid testing would be appropriate in schools in that community. 
We need to use every level of protection that we can to, to um, protect our children and to make sure that the, the workplace in a school is a safe environment. So are you saying use the rapid tests in those schools where you've had these exposure notices the way the film industry kind of uses rapid tests? Yes, and, and we've, we've been calling for rapid tests along with parents, the BCTF, others in the system, saying let's use them. We know they're not 100%, but they're one more layer of protection. And um, if we know there's an outbreak in a community, then we should be doing everything we can to make sure our schools are safe. So do you think the Surrey area then, given what we know, the problems that they've had in Fraser Health, the concern over the variants, would that qualify as an area to say, you know what, we need to put all hands on deck in that community? Absolutely. And I think that uh, the public expect that. And um, I think that school staff, and particularly in the Surrey uh, School District, the superintendent is doing an excellent job with the tools that they're given. But it is up to government to make some decisions about how we react. And I think that rapid testing is one of those uh, layers of protection that's not being used to the fullest. Is that a way, do you think, to keep kids in school? I mean, other jurisdictions don't even have kids in school at this point. Um, and, and that's been a priority here in BC, right? Yes, it has been. And, and we are um, certainly... Um, supportive of kids being in school. Um, as Dr. Henry has said many times, the, uh, the, the safety plans in schools are comprehensive. Um, the the um, results show that the safety plans are working. But as we look at outbreaks and as we look at the extra concern around the variants, I think that government needs to rethink uh, some of its strategies. And we, we do better when we know better. And I think we're at a place where we have more knowledge and uh, we need to be uh, nimble on our feet in regards to what our response is to what's happening in community and in school. So how would that work then? Would you wait for an exposure notice and then use the rapid tests? Like where would you use them? Well, I would think that um, we would look at what's happening in the community if there are significant spikes, especially around variants. Um, we would take a look at uh, those neighborhoods and take a look at what can be done to make sure that the school environment is safe and the workplace is safe. So if there's a significant spike in a certain region, then we should be looking all hands on deck. How do we get the message through to the community here as well? Because that is where this transmission is happening, right? It's not, they're not catching it in the school and passing it on to each other. They're bringing it to the school from outside. So it clearly means something is, is the message is not getting through to people. Well, I think that um, there is no doubt that people are COVID weary and we need to re, um, restate the importance of following the rules following the rules around mask wearing, around social distancing, around following the public health rules. And um, as Dr. Bonnie Henry said, I, when this variant came, became um, evident in British Columbia, we, needed, we need to reinvigorate those rules. And I think all of us have talked to people who are just tired. Yeah. But, um, you know, this is a time that we need to look at everything we're doing and we need to recommit 
that we're going to get through this. Uh, there is an end to this, and uh, we need, as, as neighbors, friends, family, we need to support one another, and we need to make sure that we personally are following the rules and that our, our friends and neighbors are following the rules. Yeah, does that mean maybe cracking down a little bit? Like, if we know that there's a community that's a problem, does that mean that we need to maybe focus on a little bit of a crackdown in those communities? There are many people who, who think that there should be a huge crackdown. But as Dr. Bonnie Henry says, if if we call on people's um, good behavior and um, their commitment to their community and their family, we need to remind people that um, this is a very, very serious situation. And yes, it's been a whole year. Who thought a year ago that we would be here today? But um, with the variants um, showing up in our in our communities, we need to be especially vigilant. And so, particularly around schools and around what's being reflected in schools, mm-hmm. like you said, Cindy, it is really uh, a reflection of community, and community has a responsibility to everyone. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you so much, and have a great day. You too. That's Jackie Taggart, who's a BC Liberal MLA opposition critic for education, uh, talking about the problem that they've got in this the Surrey community of Fraser Health right now, where they've got some spread of this B117 variant, which is a huge concern, and it's schools. Parents are getting exposure notices saying your child has been exposed to, you know, potentially to somebody who had this. And that is the big concern there. What is the best way to deal with this? Well, let's get an update now about what is going on in Surrey in regards to their new police service. It seems to be moving ahead despite all the controversies and the questions about that. But joining us now to talk more about it on the show is Norm Lipinski, the future Surrey police chief. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, good morning, Simi. How are things going in the planning process? Actually, very good. I've been here probably around six or seven weeks, and uh, clearly we have momentum. I'm uh, starting to hire executive staff. That's going to cascade down to hiring middle management staff. And then we're going to stand up a recruiting unit. Uh, This is uh, to recruit people for the front line. We've certainly accomplished quite a bit. Uh, We've got an org structure, organizational structure uh, put together, and uh, we're working on uh, a deployment model. How will this look like uh, once we get to that point where we put uh, some boots on the ground? And the last thing I'll mention as well is uh, policy development. Uh, It's very important for every police organization to have policy. It's a requirement uh, from the provincial government. Uh, We put the policy uh, provisions in place, and that includes an MOU with the IIO. So a lot of things in a short period of time, and uh, we're still leaning forward, and uh, we're doing well. Are you concerned about the questions that keep do popping up in the media about the Surrey Police Service, about getting it going and operating on time, and and the, the questions from the community about whether they still want this? A couple of things uh, there. First of all, when we're talking about this transition 
and working with three levels of government. And it is complicated because you have a number of legal issues that have to be addressed through MOUs. But um, we're, we're working together well, and uh, I'm looking to have a seamless transition, as seamless as possible. The other thing I think the community needs to know is that when working on this project, public safety is number one. We're not going to compromise public safety. So we're going to do this right, and uh, we're going to make sure all the things are in place before we uh, turn over the transition. Right. I, I know that Mayor McCallum has often said April 2021, you know, up and running. But when do you foresee the force fully up and running and policing Surrey? Well, in a way, we are running now because we, we are a, a constituted police service and we have employees. But when we're talking about boots on the ground, <clears throat> I'm, I'm thinking of uh, sometime uh, later this year. Uh, and that's, that's if everything comes together. And uh, again, there's a lot of moving parts and we're going to try and put it all together. Okay, so at what point then, you said you're going to start with the recruiting unit, when will you start hiring kind of the everyday officers who will have those boots on the ground? Yes, we're looking uh, probably spring and summer uh, to do that, and uh, we'll put a large recruiting unit uh, together. I can tell you that we've got a lot of interest already, and we receive phone calls almost, almost on a daily basis here. So uh, this is phone calls from uh, police officers from other uh, jurisdictions and as well as people that want to become police officers. And uh, we'll stand that up and we'll put a program together and we'll certainly have info sessions and uh, we'll move forward. And uh, we're here to stay. Now, I know the last time we had spoken to you, we had talked about the relationship with the public in Surrey. Uh, will the residents have a chance to weigh in on how they want to be police or what they would like to see from the police? police service? Yeah, absolutely. So what we're going to do is put together a community engagement program. Uh, that'll be in the spring, summer. And uh, when I say community, I mean uh, everything from the faith community to the citizens, the business community, uh, levels of government. Uh, we're going to have a very extensive uh, uh, consultation process. As a result of that, uh, with the police board, I will put together a strategic plan. And that'll be the template of how Surrey will be policed in the future. So uh, to your question specifically, yes, uh, we definitely need that input from uh, all facets of the community to move forward. Okay, a few weeks back, I know the National Police Federation had raised some concerns about costs related to the Surrey Police Service. Do you think you have all the funding you need to get this up and running to get to that 800 officers that have been promised? I do, and, and I'll tell you why. For this year, I certainly have the required funding to hire as many police officers as I can. And uh, as you know, the funding is really controlled by the police board who makes submissions to city council who approves uh, the budget. So I'm confident I have the, the financial um, instruments in place for us to uh, move forward and uh, very comfortable with that at this point. Okay, so then what are the next steps? Like, will, will Surrey residents notice a difference? Because, I mean, there, there are a lot of concerns about shootings right now, about the, the, the gang situation. How are you going to maintain that continuity and still address all of that when you're shifting from the RCMP to this new police service? 
That's going to require a close working relationship with the RCMP as we transition. As you know, there's uh, many different uh, units that uh, look at the gang issues, and uh, really the fundamental base is is uh, drug trafficking, and uh, so we have to address those issues. I think I have a little bit of a different uh, approach. Uh, my team has already come forward with some ideas on how to do that. We haven't uh, crystallized those ideas, but uh, we're looking to, wor- to working very closely with all the agencies that are involved in the uh, gang enforcement. Uh, I have a particular interest in education and prevention. I personally believe that we have to spend more time and more effort with our youth to dissuade them from going into a gang lifestyle. And uh, there's a whole stream of programs that we can look at and uh, analyze and then put together. Uh, But I do stress that uh, it's just not a policing um, answer to this. It's certainly the entire community, and it's certainly through uh, the different levels of government. And uh, I think what we need to do in Surrey for the future is uh, to work a little bit more closely together, to try some fresh approaches, and uh, to really lean forward into this. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, we have the enforcement, and uh, sometimes that's uh, if that's all we have, I think uh, we have to go down that road, and we have to hold these people accountable, and especially those that intend on doing harm to the community or are so reckless in their behavior that uh, there is risk to the community, and uh, I'm all about uh, holding those people accountable through the court system. So given all that, then, and the concerns Surrey residents have, Norm, do you think Surrey residents will notice a difference between what they have now and what they will have with the upcoming police service? Yes, uh, I do. And uh, it's how we deploy. Um, and they will notice a difference in responsiveness. And um, uh, the the issue, what we're addressing to some degree here, is the bureaucracy with the federal government. And it's understandable because such a big organization, 20,000 police officers across the country. Um, but uh, here, as a, as a police service within Surrey, you could move quickly. You can be responsive to the community. You have a police board that is accountable directly to the community. Uh, I think they'll notice a difference. And uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, there's some great, great police officers in the RCMP. It's not about the members. It's about the bureaucracy and the processes and uh, the way they do business that really, in many aspects, not all, but many aspects, are, are controlled by Ottawa. And a perfect example of that is policy. All policy across Canada is relatively the same for the RCMP. Well, we just uh, put our policy package together, and the uh, police board here is going to approve it, and they're representing the community, and it's a little bit different from what you may see uh, nationally. So, again, uh, police officers, RCMP, great people. I've worked with some outstanding officers, and uh, so it's the bureaucracy. And so, yes, I think there will be a difference. All right, we'll see. Norm, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Norm Lipinski is the future Surrey police chief at work there getting things up and running. They say they're on schedule, that they're going to get boots on the ground hired this year, starting this spring and summer. But if you're a Surrey resident, how do you feel about hearing that, that you will notice a difference, that it will be noticeable to you, given what you just heard there? 
Right now, though, we're going to talk a bit about a national story that you undoubtedly have been reading about. We know that an overwhelming majority of federal politicians voted in support of a motion declaring that China is actively engaged in genocide against its Muslim population. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and members of his cabinet opted not to vote on that motion, but advocates are praising that, you know, the opposition leaders, including Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, did take action on that issue. Joining us now for more on this landmark declaration is Mehmet Toti, who's the Executive Director of the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, You are welcome. How significant was that vote in the House of Commons yesterday? It is uh, remarkable, and uh, our parliament has set the precedent for other countries to follow. And our parliament became the first legislator to declare the atrocities that Chinese government is committing against the Uyghurs and the Kazakh and other NATO Turkic people in East Turkestan, that China calls as Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, as a genocide for that reason. It is quite significant. So are you saying that other countries, other Western democracies have not taken that step? Yeah, United States has already made a determination, crime determination, and it declared that uh, the Chinese atrocities committed against Uyghurs, not only genocide, at the same time it is crime against humanity. And there is intense debate in the UK Parliament and Australian Parliament, as well as at the European Parliament. So there's uh, quite right. a big debate uh, ongoing right now. Mehmet, does it do anything, though? Like, what does, does China even pay any attention to these declarations? China definitely pay attention, and probably uh, they are not giving that color to us. But the reason is China has to deal with the global communities uh, for their trade relationship or for their uh, the policy of ex- expansionism. And for that reason, uh, the, can- uh, the parliamentary uh, resolution declaring China is committing genocide is a big deal, and not only for China itself, mm-hmm. for the countries that associate them and are dealing with China and are doing business with China, because nothing will be as usual after the genocidal declaration by the parliament. So do you think like eventually it'll have an effect if, if the rest of the world comes on board and, and says this out loud? Yes, of course. And now uh, the UK is uh, uh, suggesting that there should be a debate at the UN Security Council as well. So this wave, this shock wave is continuing and uh, it is growing faster. Has anything changed for the Uyghurs in China or is the situation just getting worse? Uh, It is getting worse. And because... The part of the reason is uh, the Uyghurs' ancestral homeland of East Turkestan, which was occupied by China in 1949, has become a springboard for Chinese expansionism through Belt and Road Initiative. And four out of six land corridors that connect China to Central and Eurasia and all the way to Europe uh, passing through that region. And uh, that region itself bordering with eight independent countries. So it became very important, not only for uh, very rich natural resources, just like oil, natural gas, and uh, precious metals and others. And it is also the nuclear testing ground for Chinese government since long time. And so that area geographically was important. And what the Chinese government doing is, 
Uh, we need this land, but we don't need the owner of this land, so we have to eliminate them in order to achieve, peacefully achieve our imperial dream. And for that reason, uh, this uh, resolution has a number of uh, geostrategical implications, mm-hmm. and not only addressing the Chinese genocidal behavior, at the same time, uh, putting some kind of break for Chinese expansionism as well. So. Right. There are a number of other uh, aspects we have to look at this issue. Well, Mehmet, thank you so much for your time on that today. You're welcome. Mehmet Toti is the executive director of the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project, talking about uh, what is going on in the House of Commons yesterday, where we saw uh, the majority of MPs there, an overwhelming majority, vote in support of that motion declaring that China is actively engaging in genocide against the Muslim population in that country. Uh, Members of the cabinet and the prime minister uh, did not vote on the motion. They abstained from that. Uh, But you did have members of the opposition stepping forward and voting for it. The question is, will it have an impact on what China does there?